Richard, what is the matter with you over there? I'm fine. You don't seem fine. You're all contorted. I'm just clenching. It's fine. I'm fine. It's okay. nothing to do with fine. I'm just no. Fine. Well, yeah, fine. Obviously not fine. Why are you so clenched up? I'm no fine. Look, I can deal. I can jump. Transformers 4. Transformers 4 still. still Seriously? Still Transformers still 4? Still in my heart there is blackness towards that. Still, still. It was so long. I think I'm still watching it. It's like Vietnam. I'm in trauma. Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs spitting fire with a robot on top with a giant sword. And yet it was boring. I hate you, Michael Bay. I, I love you, pain. but I hate you. I feel your pain, Richard. But you know, not all things about Transformers are bad. No, that word is a bad thing. No, I can I can prove it right now. For instance, I'm about to transform this tin can into liquid beer. Beer? You see, learn from this, Michael Bay. week's episode of digital noise it's chris it's richard and we're very happy to be here ah, i'm ecstatic particularly now because i seem to have created a jingle <laughs> wait let's hear that jingle again digital noise <laughs> dun 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 uh-huh. Ah, uh, we got a lot of titles to talk about. Well, actually, we don't have that many titles to talk about this week. It is to be a strangely honest. thin week. It's a, and that's partially because we jumped ahead on a lot of titles last week. <laughs> that's fair enough, it, though. To be in a timely matter. Um, timely us. Timely ish. What? Esque. Esque. Whatever. Appertaining to. <laughs> but, you know, I want to, before we uh, jump right into business as usual, let's talk about the business as usual. And that is that we need you, you guys help to keep this site up and going, to, to keep the lights on here at Digital Noise and oneofus.net. And you can do that by becoming a subscriber. Do look, it. Look down the right-hand side of the front page. There's a subscribe button. There's a list of different tiers you can become a subscriber at. And by becoming a subscriber, there's all sorts of additional perks that you get along the way, including stuff we'll send you in the mail, uh, special giveaways and contests just for you, commentaries that only you can listen to, you get to pick some commentaries, all sorts of stuff, uh, extra shows that only uh, are in the forums, um, invites to special parties, all sorts of stuff. So now is as, as a good a time as any to, to join up and become one of the honored, well, I don't know about few, I don't know about many. Somewhere in between. The, the honored quotient. <laughs> the honored, yeah. Not to be revealed number. <laughs> um, between as, X and N. Exactly. Yes. It's, it's bigger than a bread basket, smaller than the Empire State Building. Uh-huh. Uh, also, if you look on the page that Digital Noise is up on, you'll see a button. Why am I gesticulating? I always do that like someone is here watching me. Freud Laven. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's fun. like being with Jerry Lewis some days, it really is. Right. Does that make me, does that make me Dean Martin? I'm just sitting over here like a chimpanzee on Ritalin. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, on the page itself of Digital Noise, you'll see a bunch of links to 
Amazon.com of the titles that we're talking about that week. And if you click on any of those links and go to Amazon.com and buy that title, or in fact, even if you go from that link and keep looking through Amazon and eventually buy something else, as long as you started from that link on our page, we will end up getting a small percentage kickback from Amazon of uh, whatever it is you buy. So it definitely helps us out if you do things that way. Do it. You know do you it. want to. You know, you can just feel that tickle. That tickle at the back of your neck that's saying... That's a different thing. You you know you wanted to buy another copy of Blade Runner on Blu-ray. Do it Who doesn't? (laughs) The 19 disc edition. I'm embarrassed to say that I own two different versions of, like, the maxi version of it on Blu-ray. And the only reason I own two different ones is because one has, like, one very minor special feature. The other doesn't. And the other one comes with a little, like, Hot Wheels version of the car from the movie, the flying car. That's... Either the greatest or saddest thing I've ever heard, and it's I'm not bo- quite sure which. It's both at the same time. Do you ever put them on different TVs at the same time and just watch them and like and just have a stereo? To make, to make absolutely sure they're the same. Yeah. <laughs> three it's, same. That There's was, three frames different. It's like they're in 3D. Ooh. Well, it's, I guess it doesn't work that way. Anyway, uh, we will end that part of the show, the uh, taking care of business, and now we will go on to uh, take a look and see what's come to us this week in the... You've got mail. Let me root around in here. I think I got a, a few questions from fans that have come in. Fans? And our first one. Let's not stretch it. Fans? People who, who put people, up with people us. We, people we love for tolerating <laughs> our nonsense. Thank you so much again. We, we really do appreciate the, the, your time and effort. Zach Chapman says, in celebration of the Raid 2 coming out on Blu-ray, and that is worth celebrating, what are the best martial art fight scenes of all time? There are certainly quite a few to pick from, there's, uh, and there's, there's no so easy answer. I, I will say my favorite um, is the closing fight in the mirror room in Enter the Dragon, which is not the one people necessarily remember. Uh, because, you know, I mean, Bruce Lee did so many great fight sequences. That, I think, is just so perfect because it, it has this sense of menace, of threat, of two people of very different skills. Uh, and it's just, the cinematography is incredible. The fact that you don't at any point see a camera, even though there's revolving mirrors left, right, and center, is just beautiful. I, and for me, that's still my favorite. That, that is the one scene I can sit, sit and watch again and again and again because I just think it's so perfectly put together. There are so many that I can't possibly just list one, so I'm not going to. Um, Coward. <laughs> I'll say the giant ladder scene in Once Upon a Time in China with Jet Li. Absolutely Ooh, phenomenal. Yes. And you can watch that over and over again as these guys are fighting on this this huge, tall series of like levels with giant ladders that they're flipping back and forth and fighting each other with and jumping from one to the other. And it's really impressive as hell early wire foo. Um, Fist of Legend, another Jet, Jet Li fight where mm-hmm. the final boss fight in there is one of the more brutal, like just very, very impressive, like just one-on-one fights I've still ever seen in a film. Okay, uh, uh, I'll ask, what's your favorite fight sequence in the Raid Two? Um, probably the knife fight towards the end in the kitchen. That is pretty cool. Yeah, although I will say the car chase beat almost everything else in that. Yeah, a, a martial arts fight. On a car, yeah. on on speeding cars. Although I, I have to say, I think the the uh, the opening fight in a bathroom stall is phenomenal. Just because I think it's one of the great crunchy uh, fight sequences. We really like. Oh no, that guy just just 
bit the wall hard. Right. There's no way that did that. You could be the best stuntman on the planet. That was a fa- that was a face full of wall. Yeah, people got hurt. Yeah, a life lot. is cheap. <laughs> uh, Dragons Forever has a great final scene in a warehouse where multiple stuntmen were seriously injured during it, as you can see during the end credits, and it's worth it. Yeah, <laughs> at least it was to me. I don't know how it was to their families, <laughs> but you're like, damn, that was really intense. And then more recently, there's a film called Raging Phoenix, where a guy and a, the girl from Chocolate, if you have ever seen that, Ooh, looks yes. like she's 13, but she's actually like 19 or 20. She's very, very small, but a wonderful martial artist. They fight a whole gang of guys who are on like uh, pogo stilts that, with blades on the back of them. Because reasons. Be- because why not? <laughs> I mean, the idea is they've mastered the art of fighting with these things, I guess, because nobody else had occurred to them to do that. Yeah, but it's a went, really, why would you do that? It's a really cool fight. Yeah. Anyway, there's many more, many more you could list. So don't go bitching at me because I didn't list your favorite. It's probably on my list. I could make a top 20, but Richard doesn't have all day. Oh. <laughs> uh, that could be a separate show. Indeed. Hell, you know, I could even list Just like... Just Bucket of Awesome. Some of the fights in the original Matrix are really, really bad. I mean, the fight in the dojo, the imaginary dojo versus Morpheus, is a fantastic martial arts fight. And, and then the other two films which never existed. No, well, there were no other films. There were no other films. There's like this urban legend that were two other films. There's a myth. <laughs> it didn't happen. It's like, it's like snuff films. Exactly. Or S- Star Wars prequels. Take that, Quiet Richard. you. Quiet you. <laughs> Hush, child. Uh, Ian Hood says, are there any little-known horror villains who deserve uh, to be up with the greats? Yes. Go. Sam from uh, Trick or Treat. Yep. I love Sam. They're making a sequel. So good. If you've never seen Trick or Treat, this is one of those classic cases of a film that the studio clearly did not know what to do with. It was back in the era before anthologies were really coming back. It's It's a perfect Halloween film. It's a series of interlocking stories that every time you watch the film, you realize little nuances of how well they interlock of just on one, st- you know, one small community on one Halloween. But there's this little, you know, he's, he's basically Halloween's incarnate. Yeah. And he's, and he, it, he's a great design. He's scary, but he has, to, has this element of fun to him that, you know, you don't necessarily get in a lot of horror characters unless they crowbar it in later. Freddy Krueger looking at you. Um, and he <laughs> carries that so well. And I, I, you know, he's, he's lovable and frightening at the same time. And the balance of that is great. And I think people are starting to realize it. You're starting to get more and more people are discovering it. Yeah. And you start to get Sam merchandise. Who, but you know, as somebody who was at one of the early screenings at Fantastic Fest and just went, this is a phenomenal film. And then was just out there going, where the hell has this gone? I, you know, I've been in Sam's corner for years and I think Sam. That's a great answer. Honestly, there aren't a lot of definitive ones for this. A lot of characters that were like, okay, that was a good movie. I don't know if it would have gone on to be the type of character you would see in film after film. Um, You know, there's a lot of films where it's not really a character, like villain in it particularly, it's evil, but I would have liked to have seen sequels like Prince of Darkness. If John Carpenter had come back and said, you know what, this is a film that is begging to see what happens next. That's not just a redux of what we saw in the first film. Let's tell the exact same story again with maybe an extra 20 seconds of information. (laughs) Uh, But I will say I'm enjoying the new series, uh, the collector that they've been doing. Oh yes. Yeah. I really, really like this character, which is kind of like taking out everything that's stupid about saw and making it work. (laughs) Like just keeping the good parts and leaving out most of the really stupid parts and still having a lot of fun with it. Really enjoy both those films with him so far. And they are they are pretty gruesome. 
I mean, oh, I, you yeah. know, I, I, I don't have the issues a lot of people have with the whole idea of torture porn. You know, it's like it's a gore film. Like this is what this is what they. It are. depends on what the the context is. I mean, yeah. like anything else, I don't mind lots of gore. I hate it when it's a tension film that lovingly sits and focuses on someone's nails being pulled out extensively. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I just find those. Just I find that boring. You know, it's. Yeah. Not, I, don't, I don't think it's going to going to end the world, but I just find those kind of dull. I think if yeah, you've actually got some emotional investment in it, yeah, then I think they, you know, and that's that's why I think the collector, uh, uh, the collector, and the sequel, the collection. And I hear there's rumors that uh, Marcus Dunstan is is trying to get the money together for part three. I hope so. Which would be, I think, the collected. I think is the term. Uh. Uh, or the collective, uh, where it turns I, out there's more than one of him. Um, yeah, I, I, and, but the second one finishes on on such a great note that I don't think you necessarily need it because it really just goes. Here's a horrible end to a horrible pair of films. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I'm happy with the two that were made. Yeah, but I would also not certainly not mind them continuing the story because the second one definitely took where the first one left off and evolved it on in the way that not a lot of horror sequels manage to do. Yeah, you know. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Jacques, I think I did this last week, Cisla says, what are some very well-regarded films that you just don't like? I have three big ones I don't like. Gravity, Goodfellas, and Fight Club. Oh, Jacques. Oh, Jacques. So wrong. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> um, I can't go with you on either three of those, any one of those three, because those are just phenomenal, phenomenal films. But uh, I understand your pain in that... When there are those films that you just, you're like, I don't get it. What does everybody see in this movie? Why am I, I can't be the only one who feels this way. For a while, I thought I was that guy on Gladiator. But as the years have gone by, it's become clear I was not the only guy. <laughs> Gladiator was a big piece of shit. You, you, you've started coming together. And the same thing with The English Patient. I was like, I can't be the only person. Oh my God, I hate that. Stupid. I hate that film from day one. Yeah, and it turns out, once again, not the only guy. I am the only guy I know, though, who still finds Gone with the Wind completely dull. Gone with the Wind, I think, is, is interesting if you watch it as a film about an extremely horrible woman uh, and a guy who gets stuck with her and at the end goes, my God, she's a horrible racist and she's annoying. I'm going to go off to, back to my old life of banging hookers and playing cards on, on uh, steamboats. And at the end, it's actually, a sto- it's actually a story about Rhett Butler getting his life back together. A redemption. It is. That's how I watch it. No, it's, it's, uh, it's boring as all hell. It's a dull film. Yeah, okay. uh, and it's, well, so and it's kind of racist. One. Yeah, but um, like, you can't give me anything for witness for the prosecution, I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, uh I um, do much for me. Uh, and I'm okay, folks. Just get the hate mail ready now. Um, I honestly, if I never have to sit through the Lord of the Rings films again, oh, I'll be okay with and it. And you like the prequels? Oh, <sighs> yeah. I but the Lord of the Rings films are like, they're so they're so long. Uh, in in pointless ways. There's so much stuff which is crowbarred in at the expense of material that the, that they excise. There's all these weird narrative decisions. It's it's formless. There are, and particularly the fact that Peter Jackson went back and went, you know what? Um, you're going to have to watch the extended editions to see stuff actually make sense. Because if you don't, then what happens? Saruman just ends up in a tower, never talked of again. You know, I mean, it, it's a, it's total Poochie goes back to his home planet uh, <laughs> and was never heard of again scripting. And I'm like, this is, it shouldn't be like this. And I, I have, uh, yeah, they're great filmmaking and blah, 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 blah. But at the same time, there's something kind of just like, it's such a trek. It really is like walking all the way to Mordor. Sometimes you're just going, oh. I wish I was on the Eagle. 
I love every second of that one. You're wrong. I do. I love you, but you're wrong. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like I said, you like the prequels. I yep. don't know what to tell I you. Will, I I'm will stand by you. that. I'm going to pick on you the of... way we used to pick on Cargill for liking Armageddon. <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with Armageddon. Oh, God, here Back we go. Back when Michael Bay could actually, actually direct. <laughs> what but about the, the sa- animal crackers scene? That's the, oh, yeah, that, no. Uh, but, <laughs> Okay, the sad thing is that, uh, uh, just to go back to Transformers, and if you did not hear our review of Transformers, you really do need to, because it is basically paroxysms of hatred for 30 minutes. It is indeed. Um, but you know, I, I look at that and go, so Michael Bay and Mark Wahlberg made Pain and Gain last year, which was one of my favorite nasty, seedy movies. Which I absolutely felt love it. Like And then a, they did Transformers 4. And it felt like a satire of Michael Bay satirizing himself in his entire film career. It really did. It felt like an absolute send-up of what he did. Like, I'm aware that I'm not making art here. Yeah. So let's have fun with it. But now after Transformers 4, I think maybe we were just reading that film all wrong. No, maybe I think really that, was his, just... that was his passion project in the right mm-hmm. in the right way. And I think... But, you know, Mark Wahlberg once in a while picks a script that he just goes, he absolutely loves. And I do wonder whether he... The way he got the money together and the, the studio permission to make Pain and Gain was to go, you know what, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do Transformers 4, and you know what, I'll set the last act in China for no good reason. Right. Let's do this, whatever. I mean, that's a studio diktat movie, and it proves that even Michael Bay does not have all the free will in the world. So, just so you know, we're still mad at Michael Bay. Anyway. I'm still mad about, about that God film. damn it, Michael Bay. This may, this may take a few months to get over. Yeah, or a few years. <laughs> All right, well, we'll close the letterbox for the time being. Thank you, Torgo. And we will move on to the reviews. <laughs> and we're going to start off with a theatrical film I did not get to see on the original release of this because it, they had three films coming out on Valentine's Day that all screened the same night. I had to see fucking Endless Love. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> And I think Bo and Ashley got to see uh, this. I think it was them. I remember it was Bo. But Winter's Tale, uh, which uh, was released in the UK as a New York Winter's Tale, just so you don't think it's in London, I guess. I don't know. Um, which is uh, based on a 1983 novel, the same name, by Mark Helprin, that apparently was very well received. And yeah. it's a romantic fantasy in the sense of like a romantic fable with good and versus evil and angels and devils, but then true love, which in theory should defeat all. In theory. But it's very confusing how that rule works in this film. Yeah. Uh, Colin Farrell plays is is clearly the hero peter lake who is supposed to be an anti-hero but only from the past you never really get to see which is that he was a thief he was raised by a gang leader russell crow sort of a uh, gangs in new york type of character except without the curly mustache um who turns out very quickly in the film is actually a demon in disguise working directly for Satan played oddly enough by Will Smith. I think that makes a lot of sense. It does. And at the same time, it's laughable when it happens on screen. You're like, really? Will Smith? Will Smith? (laughs) Will Smith is Lucifer. Okay. Why not? Um, yeah, and uh, he's decided he doesn't want to be a thief anymore. He's run away, not realizing his boss is basically like a lesser devil, and his boss is pissed. It's like, I raised this thing, this this kid from an infant to be like the guy who was going to, you know, take over when I was done on Earth. And, and you know, his ego is bruised. He's like, fuck that. I will hunt this guy to the ends of the Earth. But the thing about Peter is, 
uh, he meets this girl who's dying of consumption, um, played by Jessica Brown Findlay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the illustration. Uh, he's robbing her house when he turns out she's there. Doesn't he? Doesn't realize it. And it's one of those instant. It's not even really a meet cute. It's a romantic fantasy of falling in love, where like their eyes meet across the room, and instantly it's like they're. You know, see the arrows practically penetrating their hearts as they're like, this is the woman I was meant to be with slash man for the whole rest of my life. And shortly after that, he's like, he gets rescued by a Pegasus, basically, that I'm not sure what it has to do with anything. <laughs> it's, Some... it's, it's a ho- it's a horse that's actually an angel, which is actually a dog. Yes. Try and figure that out. Yeah. Film is not very clear about it at all, except that. Apparently, and it's not even an angel. It's like, it's some other entity that likes to get mixed up with humans every once in a while. Yeah. It's very unclear. Um, and the horse is trying to help him and her get together and help him get away from the bad guy and yada, yada, yada. He tries to save her. And I can't say what happens, even though it's not even halfway through this film when yeah. it switches from the past in 1895 to modern day. Still with Colin Farrell. I can't believe, you know, you can't even talk about this movie, but so much because you can't spoil one of the biggest moments in it that happens less than halfway through and is the fulcrum for the entire second half of the film where in modern day he meets Jennifer Connelly uh, and her young daughter and he realizes that there's something, what he thought he was supposed to be doing here on this earth, what his miracle was, as they say, was not what he thought it was, but is something else and he's got to figure out what it is. But of course... uh, Russell Crowe is still alive and finds out he's still alive and he's even more pissed. And so he's like, what? He's still alive. He can't still be alive. I'm going to kill that motherfucker. <laughs> By the way, Russell Crowe, shirt off at one point. That man is built like a tank. Yeah, he pretty he's much is. He's actually got more solid than he was in Gladiator. True. Yeah. He's still in great shape. No question. Um, I'm him. curious to know, because like I said, he's like, every time I think, well, we're going to start seeing him in direct DVD films, uh, he gets a huge role, like in Les Mis or something like that, to great acclaim. I, I I had heard that basically he's just so difficult to work with, you know, and still has drinking problems. But maybe he's just good enough of an actor that only hurts his career in brief spurts. Or he's just Australian. Or he's just Australian. He doesn't have a drinking problem. He's Australian. Just Australian. <laughs> he's actually, I would apologize to all the Australian listeners, but you all know it's true. He's actually Paul Hogan because Australians age backwards. Most people don't realize that. What happened to him? Uh, he is fighting a giant law- lawsuit against... Uh, I can't remember what the deal is. Something with his name being used for something. Somebody were trying to sue him for millions and millions of dollars, and he countersued, and he's still in the middle of this huge embroiled huh. lawsuit. There you go. Yeah. Anyway, this Paul Hogan does not appear in Winner's Tale. <laughs> but you also get uh, Eva Marie Saint, William Hurt, um, music by Hans Zimmer. A very nice soundtrack, I thought, actually. Yeah. Uh, and a very beautiful-looking film that ultimately has a lot of very nice like very like the romantic fable parts of it really work like it sells it'll hurt your heart you'll want to cry like their point you're like oh that's just you know the kid in me that wants to believe in magic is like turned on by that but none of it really makes a lot of sense in the context oh, it, it has no coherent cosmology at all like, you get the feeling that the book did, may have had that because it really feels like it should make some degree of sense but yeah. there's all this waffling about 
Yeah. Something like Stars seven characters from so... the book are left out from the movie entirely. So I'm like, yeah, I think we're missing a lot here. Yeah, but like, they, it's never quite explained what the horse is, and the cosmology of the demons is never quite clear. And it's like every, everything's kind of implied. This stuff about stars that again doesn't make a lot of sense, and I can't work out what it is. Um, but you know, I I think if you if you can swallow all that, it's actually kind of a sweet little movie. It's very whimsical. Oh, and totally. I think if you can, ha- and, I, and I, my my whimsy tolerance is actually surprisingly low, but it is helped by the fact that Colin Farrell is ridiculously charming. Yeah, he carries so much of this film because he has that kind. Of, he still has that sense of you know boyish charm, which considering he must be as old as us now, it's like how on earth he's getting away. He's he's pickled. He must be. Yeah. Well, he's, uh, but he's, he's, uh, he's Irish. Yeah. That's the other Australian. Again. Um, <laughs> and, and Asian some... backwards, I'm just saying you. Any day, Call Meany is going to look like Wesley Crusher. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, harsh on poor Colm. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think this is about how you go into it. You know, I, you know, you had a lot of issues, I think, with just it was too cloying in places. I... You know, I didn't have a problem with the cloyingness, actually. Yeah. It was just the fact that it didn't make a lot of sense, ultimately. And it felt like it wasn't... It just felt like like when you see an adaptation of a book that didn't really manage to capture the characterizations or the 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 reasons people are doing things. It yeah. felt very like, okay, next thing. Okay, next thing. Okay, next thing. And even the big transfer from one time period to the next is like... What the fuck just happened? I don't feel like by the end of the film I had any sort of satisfying explanation for why the entire first half of the movie even happened at all. Yeah. You know? (laughs) And that's a problem. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a film you kind of float with. Yeah. You, you get more than an inch under the surface. It is going to bug the hell out of you. And there are some stuff, there is some stuff where I'm like, ah, but I think I was just in a very tolerant mood that evening. <laughs> I know. That you happens. just got married. You're, but, you're oh, I'm in a good, I'm in a good mood. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> oh, I didn't really, you know. And this, you know, this is Akiva Goldman's uh, first film as a director. Oh, I didn't realize yeah. that this was the first film he had directed. That's yeah, interesting. Sure He's been a screenwriter the, forever. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it feels like, I'm pretty sure it's the directorial debut. You know, done everything, but it just really doesn't, you know, it's not inspired, but it's pretty. Yeah. And, you know, he has a couple of great female leads who I think, uh, you know, add a lot to, to what's going on. Uh, you know, it's, it's charming, you know. It, and... has, it has a definitive amount of charm, yeah. no question about to it. And uh, Colin Farrell is one of those actors who seems to me has the worst luck of anyone in Hollywood. Yeah. He's that guy who's a really fine actor who's really exceptionally good looking and just has charisma to boot. And for the life of him, he cannot pick the movies to appear in that make money. Yeah. You know, he just can't do it. Even when they're good movies, there'll be movies that nobody saw. Like yeah. The Recruit was one. I really liked him in a lot. I love that movie. Yeah. Nobody saw it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, honestly, if uh, it's... In Bruges. Oh, yeah. If, if you've got a choice, go, go watch In Bruges. And, uh, and it was just a little indie film, ultimately. Yeah. Know? But no, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of like this in a kind of like, oh, it's kind of washing over me, and I'm fe- I'm in a good place anyway. If you're in a bad mood, this is not going to break it. No. But I think if you're in a, in a happy go, you know, honestly, if you're kind of in a Titanic mood, but you don't have the necessary five hours to watch Titanic, sure. this will fill the place quite nicely. Although it is still long. It's over two hours. 
It's not much over two hours. It's a smidge over two hours. It's a smidge over two hours. It's like two hours and nine minutes or something like that. It's 118 minutes. And then if you take off the fact it's like got the traditional eight minutes of credits, it's like an hour ten, really. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So, you know, it's it's not that bad. Yeah, uh, I've seen worse things this year. True. And it comes (laughs) comes with six minutes of behind the scenes uh, of Winter's Tale, A Timeless Love, with cast and crew talking about the film. Uh, There's behind the scenes, characters of good and evil, which is to take a look at the ways in which they try and define those things. And then 12 minutes of additional scenes that were cut from the film. I didn't get to watch these, but one can only assume they fill in probably some of the gaps that are left in the story. No, I saw them. There's still huge chasms of of plotness. Yeah, like... there was, some ni- there was some nice stuff at the beginning with a, with a little model boat, which I really liked. I like that too. Oh, fil- just to go back to re- to the letterbox, other film I, that I could never get my head around that people seem to like, Life of Pi. Oh yeah, I love Life of Pi. Dumb as a box of rocks. Can't stand that. Every movie. single Darren Aronofsky film, I'm like, yep, they're 100. percent Oh, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of Pi. No, you're thinking um, of Pi. No, I, I like, like Pi. I like Life of Pi too, but not like to the level that everybody else seems to. I, I mean, I, I really liked Life it. Of Pi. I really liked Life of Pi, but. It wasn't one of the ones I would have nominated for Best Picture. Fucking tiger. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> a tiger in Africa. Tiger in a boat. <laughs> Idiot. Uh, um, okay, let's move on to... What did you do? What? What did you do? I, I So many things. <laughs> no, so many errors. It's the Irish film What Richard Did, which has been a... Which is basically loosely based on a book called Bad Day in Blackrock. Uh, which is a fictionalized story based on a real assault on a guy named Brian Murphy outside of the Burlington Hotel in Dublin in 2000. And this won the Best Irish Film of the Year Award, uh, which, you know, of course, there was probably only two films competing, but still. Wouldn't it be this and Grabbers? And the other was a television commercial for Guinness. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think 12 would have been Grabbers as well. So this is actually, yeah. a, 2012 was a vintage year for Irish cinema. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it's Played a lot of festivals, very well received. But why don't you talk about this one? I know this is one of your favorites. This is, I I I love this film. This is part of this kind of new wave of of Irish cinema that's very low key. Uh, it, it, they've got away from that kind of quirkiness that they were doing in the mid '90s with, with stuff like Waking Ned Divine, which were all which were lovely enough, but yeah, they really I weren't enjoyed just those. Like but it was becoming harmless a, comedies. It was becoming a formula. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is set in a, a wealthy area of Dublin uh, in this around this school where you've got the uh, the central character of Richard played by Jack Rayner who's a newcomer. Uh, he's kind of the the uh, Irish equivalent of the uh, the lantern jawed uh, quarterback. Uh, yeah, you know, he's the good kid at school. Everybody likes him. He plays on the rugby team. He's very well. You know, he's he's even nice, nice guy. to the kid who who goes around showing girls magic. He's yeah. nice to that kid. He is. He's a you know, he's a genuinely likable guy. Um, he gets involved with uh, this girl who turns up at a, at a beach party one day, uh, and he briefly gets distracted because this is how nice he is that he helps another drunk girl get home and then comes back to the party. Right. That's the kind of guy he is. But then he starts get, having some degree of tension with her kind of ex-boyfriend that they were never quite yeah, that never serious really clear well that's the thing i think that's why this is one of the things i like about this you know that these are 16 17 year old 18 year old kids who aren't emotionally developed they're on the cusp of becoming adults but they're not there yet and therefore they do things that are that they're not malicious 
they just get themselves into kind of emotional situations where, you know, somebody thinks somebody's going out with somebody and then they go, well, no, we're not. We're just hanging out. Did you not get that? Right. Um, because you're not at that stage where relationships are that serious. And it's, you know, about one of the first time you ever really, really experience jealousy, which yeah. is usually around the first time you really, really experience being in love with someone, you know, um, of learning to deal with that and watching uh, Richard as he's, you know, he's suspicious, but doesn't want to force the issue. It's just the, this ugliness in him is rising that he is doing his damnedest to keep tamped down as he watches this girl continue to be friends with another guy on his rugby team yeah. that clearly is interested in her, you know, I mean like, but there doesn't appear to be anything overtly happening on his side and she's not overtly responding. It's just that kind of suspicion that 18 year olds have and that's why this film works so well is because this was it wasn't improvised so much as they spent so long working on the script i mean it was a year-long process of working with the actors of, uh, of bringing them to this place where they felt comfortable producing a you know really deep nuanced realistic performances so that when the wheels come off in the second act and something truly terrible happens but completely understandable completely naturalistically done yeah things you just go like oh shit things happen even in normally benign everyday scenarios and this is this is a film that will have you asking some really serious questions about when something bad happens and it's kind of someone's fault but not necessarily absolutely their fault that that, you know there is an accidental component to something terrible happening yeah what do you want to happen after that? Is the you know would it just be if this was a a headline, you'd just go, well you know obviously they did this terrible thing and therefore they have to pay for it. This is a film about saying well, there's always something deeper. In contrast to, for instance, what you did, which is still liking the Star Wars prequels. Heathen. I'm going to end um, up with a shot at Absinthe. You, you, you are. You're going to end up with you're going to with a whole bottle game shotgun. Um. I, mean, I this is one of my favorite films of the year so far. I really was genuinely moved by this and, and thought a lot about it afterwards. And I think you know Irish cinema is in a really great place with films like this. Um, another film that um, I saw recently, which was called Love Eternal, uh, which is the most sensitive necrophilia film you will ever see in your life. And it sounds like how can that be? But it really is. And I think Ireland's just in this place now where they're doing these really smart, beautiful, low key. Um, character-driven stories. And this film doesn't do anything simple. Um, it gives the characters real emotional depth. Uh, Jack Rayner is phenomenal. Well, it does it all by you being able to understand and sympathize without feeling the need to over-exposition or fill it up with tons and tons of dialogue to explain everything. It doesn't need to. This is a very identifiable human scenario, and it lets you yourself fill in the, the gaps and the ethical questions and the moral questions that are going to be posed and going to be on fire by the end of the film. Like, well, what would you do? Yeah. You know, this is a position, you know, you like the position Richard finds himself is something a lot of 18-year-olds could find themselves in that position. Very easily. You know, I mean, it that's could why, happen. That's, that's the power of it. And, you know, the fact that he holds some really phenomenal scenes uh, with Lars Mikkelsen as his father 
and you don't feel like, eh, it's an inexperienced actor with Lars Mikkelsen. You know, those, those, there's some really, really powerful father-son moments that aren't mawkish. They're very honest, and they do show, you know, the limitations of a father's ability to protect or guide his son. And those are, it's, it's not an easy watch. It's, it's but a, I think it's, it's phenomenal. It's a film that, that proves the maxim that sometimes in films, the less said, the better. Uh, I feel like it's power lays in the fact of it doesn't have to hit you over the head with all the things going on and it, and it still works. Now, keep in mind, guys, this is a quiet, indie type film it's not going to be for everyone but if you like character slice of life pieces this is a very powerful one and a very effective one and i really do recommend it as well absolutely well let's move on to frack nation oh the story of battlestar galactica fans no is that not what this is angrier than transformers 4 um this is not about battlestar galactica no uh crap this is a hit piece this is a documentary. Uh, it's, it's not really a documentary. This is a, a hit piece. Uh, if you've see, ever seen Gasland... Yes, uh, which I liked quite a bit. And Gasland 2. Have not watched Gasland 2. Uh, which documentaries about how you know fracking is becoming a, a major issue. Um, co- you know, that it's causing earthquakes. Undeniable fact. Everybody's admitting this now. It causes at least some it's, earthquakes. It's really it's hard to... I mean, at this point, it's like we're, we're saying there's no such thing as global warming. It's like, look, man, you're responding to people who are losing money by people saying, but by us knowing that there is such a thing. And that's it. There is no science behind the counterclaim. None. And and this is it, is what you're saying. This the is, entire this is, film designed to show no. Basically, let's let's cut to the chase here. Uh, uh, Philip McAleer, uh is an Irish reporter who used to work for uh, the uh, the Times in the UK, which automatically makes you suspect as a journalist, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> because it's an extreme it's an extreme pro corporate. Uh, right-wing newspaper, as far as I'm concerned. I, 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 I don't trust a, a single thing that comes out of the Times. Uh, he then went to work for The Economist, which is, you know, the definitive state... I mean, it's got some really good reporters, but the definitive statement on pro, pro-corporate pro um, culture. He has become a documentarian. He made... Uh, but his job is to debunk uh, environmentally-minded films. He did an attack piece on... Um, an inconvenient truth. His attack piece has been debunked. Uh, and this was produced because, uh, 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 Josh Fox, who made Gasland, was working on Gasland 2. And mysteriously, McAleer starts working on this project, which is basically debunking, um, uh, uh, Gasland. And this is what it is. This guy is a front for, the, for the fracking industry. Um, you know, he may have used Kickstarter to, to fund this, but this guy is, is a, a tick as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I, I'm really appalled. Uh, I, I'm baffled why, why Magnolia picked this up. Absolutely baffled. Uh, this yeah, is, it does this seem is a, a weird choice piece. for that company. Um, and, you know, I just, he uses, uh, journalistic tactics that I think are, you know, frankly unprofessional as a reporter myself. They are unprofessional. He doorsteps. He has been proven to have edited some of the footage, so it completely misrepresents what the what the topic of the conversation was. And now he's doing um, an attack piece on abortion rights. This guy, is, uh, everything he does has been uh, at some level uh, tracked back to Americans for Prosperity and the Koch brothers. 
this is what this is. This is this is corporate propaganda masquerading uh, as independent uh, documentary journalism. And his whole, I am appalled by his it. whole argument of saying no, we're being completely transparent. It is not paid for by any of those people. Is that they said. Uh, we don't want special interests to be directly involved, so we're returning all funds on the Kickstarter raised from companies or senior executives in the gas industry, which didn't stop the campaign from being openly promoted by pro-industry lobbying, lobbying groups, Energy in Depth, and the Marcellus Shale Coalition. And the so most- it's like, I'm sorry. You know, not only the fact that, like, it's how easy it is to cover up, like, how much money you might be giving to make a film on Kickstarter, just do it on any other name. I put it under my daughter's name. Who knows? Yeah. You know, whatever it is. Uh and the the weirdest thing, saying anyone who gives any money is automatically going to be an executive producer on the film. The film has 3,305 executive producers on it. Uh, <laughs> which every, is just All ridiculous. those worthless IMDb credits. Yeah. Um, and the, the final 10 minutes of this film is basically, is basically the director just going, why do you hate electricity? You hate you hate the fact that there are light bulbs. If you don't like fracking, you hate power. Oh, you God want sakes. all the babies to die. Like it is the most. It not only is it manipulative, it's shitty filmmaking. This is just. It's badly done. It's vindictive. It's it's extremely well researched from the point of view of try, of using whatever little morsel it can to try and attack its target, and its target is not. The issue of fracking, its target is Josh Fox. This is an attack piece, and I am appalled by it because it, it's corporate PR, nothing else. Put a fucking, put, don't call it a film, call it a fucking press release because this is what this movie this is. This sounds like fracking bullshit. I, I am actually, I am legitimately angry about this than Transformers 4. <laughs> yeah, and well, you should be because yeah. Transformers Four isn't actively trying to destroy the planet Earth. Uh, it's purely passive. <laughs> let's move on to another film I got to see that you did not, which was the latest film by Neil LeBeau. I wish I'd seen this instead. I really do. I wish he had to. Uh, Some Velvet Morning. Now, people know Neil. Neil LeBeau's actually had a pretty big career, but no one has ever really remembered anything by him quite as much as they did his first film, In the Company of Men, which was a very. <laughs> no, there's the Wicker Man. <laughs> Well, okay. Remembered in a good way. We didn't remember that on purpose. No. Uh, in the Company of Men, it was one of those ones where it was very... It's exploring misogyny in a shocking and horrific way. But, you know, LeBeat makes these films where you're never really quite sure exactly what he's saying about pol- gender politics and racial politics. You're like, you're saying something... I'm not always come a hundred percent clear on what it is or the the the, the fine details. Of I, I've always thought that his his angle is that you're all awful and you all deserve absolutely everything that's happening to you. Maybe so. Yeah, I think he is a true misanthrope. But even so, some Velvet Morning doesn't really feel like that. Now, this is basically a play, even though it's not. Neil Lebutz written many plays. This is not one of the plays he wrote. This was written for the screen, uh, starring only Alice Eve. Uh, you'll probably uh, remember from uh, the first Star Trek reboot, or the, I guess both of them she was in, because wasn't she, uh, she was the daughter of, of uh, Peter Weller, I think? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and Stanley Tucci. St- standing awkwardly in a, in a bikini, in, in her underwear at one point, in the most awkwardly posed semi-nude scene in yeah, history. Very, very true. But this is entirely inside a small house in Brooklyn, New York City, uh, where this middle-aged lawyer named Fred, played by Stanley Tucci, shows up at Alice Eve's house, who we only know, I believe, I believe we only know her as, yes, as Velvet, even though she loudly protests every time he calls her that during the film. 
And it's, you know, he rings the bell, she shows up and she's like, you could tell she's not happy to see him, but she lets him in. And we see through the dialogue as it goes along what their relationship is, which is that they haven't seen each other in four years. He's like, look, I've, I finally left my wife. I'm here for you. And she right off the bat is like, look, it's been four years. I have moved on to other stuff. I mean, you can't just show up in my life again and expect because you finally left your wife that I'm going to, you know, just welcome you back in. And, you know, he's persistent, but then starting to get obsessive and weird. And as it goes on, he's basically bullying her in this, you know, movie long discussion into trying to take him back. And as it becomes clear, she's a high priced escort. In fact, when they met, who would, who would intentionally, when she was in college, try and meet the fathers of girl, you know, other girls and boys in college and stuff to slip them, you know, you know, a note and seduce them, you know, find the rich guys and, and get them that way. And he was one of them, except the one that for a while she quit to just exclusively be with until he decided to go back to his wife. In fact, like she met through his son. And when he's come back, she was just getting ready to go out the door for an appointment with his son, which nah. adds another level of awkwardness to it. And things get very confusing at points, but ulti- everything is ultimately explained, and it finally comes to one of the biggest, seriously, what the fuck, twist endings of any <laughs> film I've seen any time recently, which you don't expect from, like, a, a you know, a single-act play like this. Uh, like, one of those, like, oh, you just turn everything that you just saw on its head completely, and then you just sit there in shock, kind of going, um... What are you trying to make me think, Neil Labute? Because I don't even know. I really don't know what he wanted me to feel at the end of this, except some people are going to feel betrayed. Some people are going to feel angry. Some people are going to laugh and go, ha, joke's on us. Uh, I don't know. But it has two phenomenal actors who give incredible performances versus each other. It has highly charged emotional scenes. Uh, it has... You know, stuff that no regular person outside of maybe the Japanese anime fans is gonna are gonna <laughs> want to actually see happen. And Tentacle <laughs> No, no, there's no giant squids from space who are rapey. Which I feel like every movie is improved by that, except yeah. maybe a Transformers film. Yeah. But um it's it is good. It's not gonna be for everyone, and if you are easily upset by gender politics this is going to probably infuriate you incredibly. So if you already know you're one of those people, enter enter with caution. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying. All right, so let's move on. Where is my mouse? There it is. (laughs) To a film I think we both kind of enjoyed, um, Blood Ties. This is a 2013 French-American crime thriller, which is a remake of a 2008 French uh, thriller. Buff. Uh, huh? I'm sorry. Buff. Buff? Buff. Shia LaBeouf? No, buff. Very French. It's it's the French equivalent of meh. (laughs) The film Les Liens du Sang, which I never actually saw, which is strange because I was watching a lot of pretty much everything Indian foreign that came out in the theaters in the late 2000s, but uh, which is also an adaptation of a French novel of the same name. This one, however, has a bunch of American actors in it and has one of those cast lists that you're like, wow, how did I not hear about this movie? Yeah. It sounds like one of those that would have been pushed into the major theaters. You've got Clive Owen and Billy Crudup, who are both <laughs> actors who are great, who kind of like got 
like missed their chance for a list, like yeah. somewhere along the line, something went wrong with both of their careers and they just, you know, the brass ring just out of their grips. I think Clive Owen was always just putting a holding pattern because people thought he was going to be James Bond. Well, he was, he was going to be Bond. And, and it never that, happened. And it never actually happened. Yeah. Something went wrong. If he had been, his career would have taken a very different turn, I suspect. Yep. Um, but they play brothers. One is just getting out of prison, Clive Owen, and he's, you know, at least attempting to go straight. But uh, he's in really doesn't get along well with his brother, Frank, played by Billy Crudup, who is a New York cop and just doesn't trust his brother, doesn't think he's capable of going straight. And sure enough, he's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, he's just you know, the world doesn't really go out of its way to help out cons coming out of prison like get get a new start it really doesn't and even though he to be fair has his opportunity he fucks it up rather quickly uh he falls for a girl who's where he works played by myla kunis uh who is having a up to her career she seems to be heading towards a list oh yeah um uh and he's trying to dodge his ex who's the father uh, of his child played play by Marion Cotillard who is already at a list but just takes whatever she wants yeah like you know sometimes she's in a huge summer blockbuster and sometimes she's in a tiny little arty french film you've never even heard of both <laughs> both uh, Mary, uh, she's interesting in this role because she's like such a junky waste of space yeah she's she's as unpleasant as anybody else in the film which is a real change for her i don't think she's it ever is. had to play just that just much so sleazy yeah. and gross uh although still attractive nonetheless yeah um billy crudup's character frank you know i mean he tries to be a really good cop but even so he arrests this guy based on very flimsy evidence and it seems clear it's really because this guy is married to and has a daughter with the woman that got away for him, played by Zoe Saldana, who he is like, no, I've just reached that point in my life. I don't care that I'm white and she's black. I don't care about anything else. I've decided she's the woman for me. And so particularly because this is, this is eighties, seventies, eighties, New York. So, right. you know, I think there's, there's a, a lot more undercurrent of, of racial and sexual, uh, uh, tension than I think nece- you yeah. necessarily get with this film. Now, uh, there are some fantastic sideburns, Yes, they're not least sported by all Clive over the place. I, you know, this one's an odd one because when it played at Cannes, it was actually twenty minutes longer than uh, the the cut that's out on DVD now, um, and that must have been insufferable because this is yeah even at the low at the short length, uh, it's it's slow, it's very slow paced. Uh, you know. I, but there's some, some really great material in it. It also has one of the best uh, closing chase scenes that is just a, a slow burn chase scene. The final sequence is is absolutely phenomenal. As you realize, you know, that the tension between uh, Billy Crudup and Clive Owen, who, who I have to give credits for a phenomenal American accent in this. Yes. Um, yeah, in fact, I think it's better than Crudup's. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, that you know that something bad has to happen between them that there's no the you know there's too many players there's too many people involved who who somebody has to go down somebody potentially somebody has to die it's unavoidable and it does that kind of build up that tension quite well but it's a little too slow the ingredients are really great but this film needs a heavy heavy re-edit it doesn't just need trimming which is what happened it really needs let's pull some some of this out 
put it back together in a, in a much more interesting way. Uh, you know, you got James Kahn as their father, who yeah, has some great moments. But, but they don't not... give him a lot to do. Yeah, but he, he did, I think he does with what he's got. He does some really great character development. Is when you explain when he explains like why he can still love both sons, even though one is a cop and one is a criminal. You know, the, how you could have got to a position where he produces two boys who are this different in disposition. And Lily uh, Taylor playing this, the other member of that family, the sister who's just kind of hapless. and Oh, she just turns up and then goes away. Yeah, she's like, like she's I barely just want everybody to get along and she they don't give her much to do. But it, it also, did not need her. At I, all. Another character is not in this enough is Noah Emmerich, who's so wonderful on the TV show The Americans. And he plays the partner of Billy Crudup, who it seems like their relationship is developing into a much more interesting arc than it really actually is developing into. Yeah. I mean, it's really focused on that family dynamic uh, between Clive Owen and Billy Crudup. And they are kind of on fire when they're in the same room together, no question. And there's some genuinely tense sequences as this goes along. But I did feel outside of the end, there wasn't a lot that was terribly unpredictable along the way here. And that was my problem more than slow pacing. I really enjoyed most of the performances in here enough, especially Clive Owen, who was just kind of chewing up the scenery at oh, points yeah. and having a good time. Which is part of the problem, I think. Him and Crudup have, uh, uh, have got such different acting styles yeah. and I, you know Owen I think can still make the the, the leap to A-list I don't know Crudup is Crudup I'm not he's really interesting as an actor I think yeah. he makes makes interesting choices in performance but he's a little bit of a charisma-free zone, and it, that's a real a real problem here in a film that's a little laggy and predictable. I mean, he's supposed to be the guy who's like you by default. You go, well, of course you're going to root for the cop, not the criminal. But he's also a huge stick in the mud. Yeah, you know, like when he the thing he does to bend the law is for you know misplaced manipulative love, and you're like, you got to give me something more to like about this guy to feel balanced between these characters in some way. And it just doesn't. It never really does. So there's, I think that the problem ultimately isn't even the editing it, it's at the script stage that some things go wrong with this yeah. uh, and the way that things are balanced in the story but there's more than enough good stuff here that I still would recommend this to people who like period piece crime thrillers yeah. and like I said Clive Owen this is one of the best films I've seen him in for like for his performance wise in a while yeah so if you're already a fan of Owen, you three of you out there who still remember <laughs> him fondly, then, hey, Blood Ties. Yep. <laughs> Check yep. it out. All right. Well, let's move on. I actually have to cut and paste this this one, uh, my information on this one, because for some reason it, it wouldn't save as a link on my computer. Yes, we do look up links and cheat as we go. Uh, you didn't get to see this one, and I'm glad I didn't hand it off to you. Well, This movie well. is a, a guest directed DVD film called The Jungle. Oh, that sounds awesome. Uh, okay. I'm going to cheat a little bit here because Dread Central did this so much better and explaining. All right. Found footage horror films. There's a few of them, right? Oh, uh, they have one or two. And every once in a while you see one that you go, there's a lot of things that are really done so well in this. And the setting is so different from what we've seen before that if this had just come out 15 years ago, it might have been considered an early classic in the genre. But now, it's just kind of tired. I'm go I'm quoting from Dread Central here that says... Uh, Hi, guys. Uh, yeah, who are great. I love their site. Uh, because they said it better than I, I could really hear. Um, it's very by the numbers. No, number one, introduce the characters and set up what little plot there is, include an ominous warning of things to come. Is an old lady going, do not go into the jungle? <laughs> In this case, it is a couple of uh, locals 
in this jungle that this guy who's wants to make a film chasing down the mysterious Javanese Jaguar. Uh, he wants to find one like, because apparently it's not entirely clear that they're even still alive and he wants to make a documentary about them. But people are like, don't go into those woods. Those woods are evil. And he's like, whatever douchebags, leave me alone. Uh, number two, everything seems to be going as planned except for a few moments of innocuous weirdness. Oh, that innocuous weirdness. It gets Blair Witchy at points like, Hey, what's that weird thing up in the tree? Oh, don't touch that. That's a black magic uh, token left by somebody. Don't, don't mess with that. Number three, weirdness escalates into threatening sights and sounds. As you do. <laughs> As you do. Number four, arguing and infighting. My least favorite thing in found footage films that's in almost all of them. And honestly, that, that's Blair Witch. The reason I can't stand the Blair Witch Project, because from start to end, they never stop like yelling at each other. I'm like, who am I supposed to like here? I wouldn't have a beer with any of these people. <laughs> I want them to die. I can hardly wait for them to die. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't die graphically enough for my taste or yeah. at all. Number five, something unseen attacks and bursts of shaky cam chaos. Yes. That's why found footage movies are made found footage films. So you can save the money on not showing much of the monster. Number six, someone pleads. They get the hell out of there, but can't because they're either trapped, refuse to leave behind a missing person or the stubborn person in charge insists they push forward. In this case, it's it's pretty much parts of all three. And number seven, remaining characters' fate is sealed in an explosion of shaky cam chaos roll credits. Even having the nerve to say at the beginning of it the whole sort of like, you know, the little text that says, this is all that remains of this expedition, which is really, like, there's nothing else left to say. At this and point. it's, you know, I'm still quoting a uh, really dread central here by, but you know, anybody who's watching us, these films can point this out. It's the only genre that regularly tells you what the end of the movie is before the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, why do they do that? Leave it like having a rom-com that says, and then they got chlamydia. Yeah, exactly. And, the, and then they fell in love, but, or, and then they fell in love, but one of them died from cancer. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, this this really feels like we're... I, I still feel there's fun stuff to be done with uh, fan footage. I've seen some, some good stuff in the recent uh, recent months. I like Devil's Pass a lot, which was... You know, not I, heard, I heard good things about that. It's pretty that. good fun. I mean, there's definitely... Um, I'm not dismissing the genre as a whole. But I'm saying... Do something. You know, have something fresh. 95% of it is just... Like, they've got that formula that probably is written out much like this, except in a, oh, no, this is how you make one of these films. Actually, much like romance and porn novels are. There's, there's probably. Like, they're, they're, oh, no, this is true. Uh, a friend of mine wrote, uh, wrote some, and they actually give you a list of, here's how, how the Checklist beats you've got to hit. So, and so, like, with the porn novels, they actually say, well, you know, if you want it to be under this imprint, then you can't have sodomy, uh, but you can have pissing fetish, fetishes. So it's like, it's actually very, like, you have to mark boxes. Huh. Uh, and you get the I get the vague feeling this is very much like that. It's like, have we hit all the marks we're supposed to hit? Move along. We've found that this type of thing tends to work with found footage films. Yes, maybe if they are playing in theaters, not so much direct to DVD. No. <laughs> and this is just, I mean, even when you finally get to see this monster, which along the way they're like going, this is not the Jaguar. We found a dead big Jaguar. Something else is here. And guys going, it's a werewolf or it's some other, it's, it's a mega Jaguar. <laughs> you know? Super Jaguar werewolf. It's a huge cannibalistic Jaguar, just like the shark. <laughs> Remember the shark that killed the other great white shark? Yep. Everyone's like, ah, Megadon! And they're like, no, just, just a bigger shark. Yep. Um, I need a bigger shark. When they finally show this, it really just looks like a, a like a dude in an ape suit. Yay. Is what it looks like. I mean, like one of those little cameras shaking and he comes right up to the camera. You're like, wow. 
and not even a good looking ape suit. You shouldn't be able to see the seams. And, and this, this, this is going to make me doubly sad. I'm now glad I haven't seen this because uh, coming out later this year is uh, uh, Eduardo Sanchez, who did Blair Witch Project. Hush you. Uh, he has his his uh, his own fan, uh, new fan footage film, um, which is a, um, a Bigfoot a, film. A, yeah, it's a Bigfoot film called Exists, and it's phenomenal. And one of the things that they said they were going that they did before they actually started making it was they went and they did the Bigfoot costume. And they said, we want it to look phenomenal or we're not going to do it. It's got so there's, now there's no excuse for doing a shitty monster just and just going, oh, it's found footage, nobody can be looking. No, shut up. The thing is, yeah. they've got this exotic locale. They were clearly actually there. This, like, by the nature of where they are is kind of creepy. But they felt like that was enough and just fell back on the same old, same old. You end up with just a film that's not worth spending your time with Boom. at all. Uh... uh but let's go on, you know, let's waste no more time in the jungle and move on to The Chef, The Actor, The Scoundrel, a 2013 Chinese comedy film that I did not get to see, but you did. Oh, my goodness. Um, This is yet another of those, um, of the long run of Chinese films about the Japanese occupation. Uh, which is obviously still a, a very open wound, but at the same time, it's like a little bit politically uh, questionable because Japan and China are you know, getting closer to tension again. So whenever I see one of these, I go, oh, they're good fun. Oh, no, this is kind of weird propaganda. <laughs> uh, this is set during the um, uh, the uh, 1940s uh, Sino -Japanese, Second Sino-Japanese War. And it starts in a... <sighs> With this kind of really nicely choreographed heist of this guy who attacks a, what single-handedly manages to take a, uh, a, a horse and cart, which is, has a, a, a Japanese dignitary of some variety in it. And then they burst into a, uh, a boarding house slash restaurant where everybody in it seems a little bit extreme and ridiculous. And they seem like caricatures and the Japanese guys are going, what the hell is happening here? I don't understand this. You people are all complete idiots. <laughs> um, Stupid Chinese. Yeah, it really is. Um, and what's weird is that there's supposed to be a couple of the people in here are Japanese, but they're really ridiculous Japanese stereotype, including one who has buck teeth. Oh, no. And I'm like, oh, what is going on? And I, for the first 20 minutes, I was completely baffled because it really felt like I was dropped into the third act of a farce. It was fun, but I didn't understand what the hell was happening. And then, I, then it has a flashback where it explains what is happening, which is that the these bunch of idiots who are you know have kidnapped these guys and run this restaurant and all complete morons and and you know very Jerry Lewis kind of broad spoof characters are actually a crack team of spies who are trying to get hold of a cholera cure because and historical fact uh, there was massive a massive cholera outbreak in uh, China at this time, and the Japanese uh, had a uh, had a cure, but they weren't sharing it with the Chinese. So you're kind of going, well, this got bleak. Yeah, this got dark. I thought this was a comedy. And then it turns out that the two actual Japanese officers they've uh, they've kidnapped were from the very real Unit 731, which was actually the Japanese bioweapon bioweapons bio research group. Yeah. And if you've ever seen the X-Files, uh, Unit 731 is, is featured in that. If you've ever seen the really distressing uh, Chinese uh, exploitation movie, Man Behind the Sun, uh, you know, you know, what they did to 
Chinese citizens was just it was just appalling. Yeah, I mean, it was, this is historical fact. It was equal fact. to the the horrific things that the Germans were doing to the Jews. Uh, uh, in many ways, you know, some people would argue that they they were worse because this was systematic experimentation. Yeah. In just really just appalling. I mean, you don't want to kind of say one atrocity is worse than another, but. Unit 731's experimentation. Yeah, this wasn't one or two people. Hybridizing was, with aliens, things that you uh, should never do. But this was really... But this is <laughs> Sorry, a comedy. I know I shouldn't laugh at yeah, that. That was, was the X-Files. <laughs> That's the X-Files there take on it. But this, was, this is a comedy. And it's like, well, hang on. You, how am I supposed to feel about this? It's kind of fun. It, it keeps doing this switchback narrative between... Oh well, something dumb has happened, and you spent ten minutes going. I don't know why they've just done that dumb thing, and then they explain something, <laughs> and then he pulls a real uh, trick out of his back pocket. That in the last act, suddenly an extremely sympathetic uh, Japanese intelligence officer appears out of nowhere, who you're supposed to really like, and you're like, "But you guys have just been taking the piss out of every Japanese." In fact, uh, for the last hour and a half, I don't want uh, it's we it's. It's weirdly fun. It's completely incoherent and then goes back and explains why it was incoherent. Um, and then it's kind of, yeah, the weird level of, of contemporary politics that's in there. I'm like, I don't, I'm not really sure. This is very clearly, it's uh, Wellgo, I think, who, who uh, has uh, released it in the US. It feels very much like one of their films that is they're not really releasing uh, for the English-speaking audience in America, they are sp- they are releasing uh, for uh, first, second, and third generation Chinese migrants, yeah, and, to- and it really feels like that's the, you know unlike some of the stuff they've been releasing recently. Um, uh, like Logo um, seems to be unlike the murder. Logo's just like we're just going to put out everything that comes out in China. It yeah. seems like which is fine with me. Yeah. but you, it's not like it used to be. Like just a couple years ago, when if we were getting a Blu-ray import of something on China that from China, it was probably because it's considered to be a really great film that's yeah. going to cross barriers. Now, with Wellgo and there's somebody else who does it too. I forget the other company. They're just putting out everything that yeah. comes out. <laughs> and I, I really, I really feel this. This is not a third-tier film. It's it's visually got some great moments because it'll suddenly when they couldn't afford a particular massive effect, it drops into this really beautifully done animation style that actually works incredibly well. Yeah, I, it was. It's it's a very mixed bag for me. If you're a completist on everything that's coming out of China at the moment, if you like kind of awkward broad comedies with some cultural references that I'm sure I didn't get, yeah, uh, it is a bit racist. It's it you know it's quite racist in places. Now that made me a little bit squeamish. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mixed bag. Really don't know how I feel about this film because it's it was fun. But then I was kind of frustrated because the narratives are complete fucking disaster. It's like it just a lot of it just doesn't translate. No, yeah. I think it really. I think I think you know, I am not the target demographic. <laughs> well, let's move on to something I did translate, but I'm not sure I'm the target demographic for either. Which is uh, the, the new series Masters of Sex, <laughs> which is not another one of those like real sex shows on HBO where it's just a bunch of like you know swingers and people who build dildos and stuff like that. Although there is some degree of dildo uh, building in here. This is Showtime's uh, period piece show, which is like let's make Mad Men but with a lot more sex, which is a challenge in and of itself. Uh, and it's also this is actually based on a true story. It's based on the biography of uh, William Masters in Virginia Johnson uh, called. 
called Masters of Sex, The Life and Times of William Masters, Virginia Johnson, the couple who taught America how to love. Um, Michael Sheen, the wonderful Michael Sheen, just such an incredible actor. If you ever watch Frost Nixon, which was my favorite movie that came out that year, like you'll go like, holy shit. This guy's or incredible. The Damned United, which is uh, yes. uh, one of the best soccer movies ever made. Uh, he plays William Masters, a very stern, authoritative, uh, you know, alpha male type who is one of those, I'm not, I'm going to be, if I have to explain myself about everything, that's when I'm going to get irritated and my voice is going to raise. I'm going to speak in clipped, clear tones, tell you to fuck off, and you should respect that. That's how we roll. The problem is, is that he's trying to get started this research program in human sexuality that actually involves observing people masturbating and couples having sex at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. And obviously, what with the period of time that this is going on uh, in the 50s, this is difficult to have happen. Uh, even though one of his best friends is the provost, the, the guy basically running the, school, the teaching college, played by Bo Bridges, he's like, look, you're fucking crazy. You cannot do this study. And he, he's determined to the point that he's going to a cat house and paying prostitutes <laughs> to do stuff. But he's finding that that doesn't work because it's too narrow of a spectrum of people. But he doesn't know how to relate to people at all. He doesn't, not getting any help. And then he meets Virginia E. Johnson, played by the also wonderful Lizzie Kaplan. This woman, this actress, she has so much charisma that even when she's not in a great film, she's the one you remember from it, going like, yeah, but I liked Lizzie Kaplan. And she's playing the exact opposite of him, except in the sense that she also is capable of disconnecting herself when necessary. She's the modern... So, so they don't both feel the urge to rub one out constantly. No, well, she's the modern woman who can completely just have sex and not have any emotional content with it. And she is baffled that not everyone else feels the same way. In nah. fact, early on, she, uh, you know, has sex with a young, very attractive doctor, uh, Dr. Ethan Haas, played by Nicholas D'Agosto, who cannot believe that she's not falling in love with him instantly. Just his ego. He's got the, you know, the God as doctor ego. And he's like, wait, what? I had, but I had sex with you. Why aren't you falling all over yourself? I don't understand. She's like, look, I have two kids, two previous marriages. I don't want to be in a relationship. Fuck off. I just wanted good sex. Michael Sheen's character, Masters, William Masters, sees her and he sees this of the modern woman part. He's like, she's fascinating. I've never actually met a woman who is this self-assured, who is this intelligent, and who is not a doctor, unfortunately, which makes things complicated. But he brings her into his world where they start surreptitiously doing their research. And it's filled with sex. I mean, this every episode has like seven or eight, like, full-on naked sex scenes between various characters, what? What? including Lizzie Kaplan, who, by the way, looks terrific na naked, uh, if you were wondering. <laughs> um, and and I, come the letters. I, you know, I don't get really distressed by, like, sex or nudity scenes. It doesn't take me out of stuff. I mean, and this is about that. And it's all very clinical, most of it. In fact, where it starts to work the most is about halfway through the season when they've gotten to this point, the, the Masters and Johnson, where they're going we don't have enough volunteers. We should start having completely all business, all clinical sex with each other. <laughs> and honestly, the, the, they could have called the show. Everybody wants to fuck Lizzie Kaplan because that's pretty <laughs> much one of the, pretty much everybody just wants to fuck Lizzie Kaplan. And it, the show is a rule 43 version of itself. Isn't exactly. It, <laughs> it kind of works. I mean, this was covered with praise 
I mean, just like just bu- praise. bukkakied with praise by critics across the <laughs> world who just loved the shit out of it. And there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, like Bo from the original Gentleman, he loves the show. And there's there's nothing in particular about it that I can say I don't like. It's just I can't quite get into the plot machinations of like, oh, who's going to be with who? I mean, it's very soap opera-ish, but in a very classy way. You know, yeah. you know, it's very classy, aside, aside from the fact that everybody's naked and talking. Dead classy. She kept knickers on and everything. <laughs> no, as, as my mother would say, there's no knickers on. Um, uh, Allison Janney has an interesting role in here, playing Bo Bridges' unsatisfied wife, who turns to a young doctor for an affair. There's a lot of interesting things happening, but I'm not sure really ultimately what it's building towards. I mean, we know if you read through history, you know to some degree what it's building towards. But in an, in and of itself, what are these arcs? But like self-fulfilling little who's going to end up romantically involved with who. And that's just not as interesting to me, I guess. Um, I do and en- did enjoy this first season. I think a lot of people are going to love this season, but it is one of those examples of something. It's like, not everything is for everybody. And I'm just not sure masters of sex is really for me. There was no aliens anywhere. There were no, uh, nobody was, but chainsawed apart, yeah. you know, n- Batman didn't show up even once. Not even true once. artist, true not, artist, not even one appearance, but hey, you know, I'm kidding, but it's got lots of extra features, audio commentary by the actors and the executive producers. Uh, there's a 13 minute making of masters of sex. Uh, there's 13 minutes of deleted scenes. There's seven minutes just looking at, um, uh, Sheen's performance as Dr. Masters, five minutes on just on Lizzie Kaplan as Dr. Johnson. Uh, there's a seven minutes on the real masters, Dr. Masters, and then four minutes of, uh, uh that's sort of an, called the surprising facts about sex. It's just an overview of what Masters and Johnson found with their, Really distressingly specific studies. (laughs) One of the most entertaining parts about this thing is when they're really getting into the nitty gritty of like, huh, that's interesting. We're looking at like how the vaginal orgasm is actually like with the, the, you know, the feedback we're getting, the, the, you know, the science that we're seeing on here, the science that we're looking at, you know, that's very scientific. Um, is exactly the same for both orgasms, despite the previous contention by Freud that the clitoral orgasm is a immature orgasm, oh, and Freud. the vaginal organi- or organism orgasm is the mature. You don't orgasm. want a vaginal organism. No, you uh, definitely don't. That leads to bad things and you itching. Have and, yeah, it's the razor blades when you pee. It's not good. Yep. Uh, so I don't know. Mixed reaction by me, but honestly, I can't help but say you shouldn't. Probably shouldn't take my word for it on this one. It's so beloved. You may be wrong. And, and well, it's the thing is, I, there's nothing I can think of to say bad about it per se. It's just, it just not my click. kind of thing. Yeah. It's not really 100% clicking. I need a few more swords. Yeah. And by that, I mean literal swords. Yeah. Not metaphorical ones. Because it sounds like there's a lot floating around in this. <laughs> or at least just Don Draper somewhere. Yeah. Where's the crossover? Don Draper comes in and fucks the entire cast and then leaves. Do you, you keep your 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 slash fiction to yourself young man move on move I on. will not move along alright and now we come to that part of the show where we do our giveaway giveaway and our final title is actually for me my pick of the week as well I, if it wasn't for uh, what Richard did, this would be mine as well. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, and that title is Rob the Mob is a 2014 crime drama film that kind of just completely slipped past my radar but it's got the always incredible Michael Pitt, who probably most of you will know from uh, uh, the show uh, Boardwalk Empire, from the first couple seasons of that, who 
I mean, he's just one of those guys. He's got an odd face. He's attractive, but he's got an odd face. And he always plays kind of wonky, offbeat characters. He's like a young William Defoe or he's something. Like a, he's a, he, he, he acts like William Defoe, but looks like a mini William, uh, a mini Michael Shannon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would say that's true as well. But it's 1991, and he's hooked up with a girl named Rosie, played by Nina Arianda, who is one of those women who's more been a Broadway actress than anything yeah. else throughout her career. But she's very good in this, uh, playing a sort of... What was what is it you described her as earlier? Uh, there's a lot of... Uh... Mirosolvino in uh, Mighty Aphrodite. Uh, this is New York at the height of the Gotti trial. And, you know, he's a, a you know, low-grade hood. She's basically his, his strung-out girlfriend who, uh, you know, she's kind of loud and obnoxious, but kind of, you know... A little bit of, of Nancy Spongin. Yeah, quite sweet-natured in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, they pull off an extremely inept... Uh, heist at a at a uh, at a florist's uh, get busted because he's an idiot. Um, she's strung out. Uh, he goes to Rikers, comes out uh, comes out eighteen months later. She's kind of got her life back together. He wants to get his life back together, but isn't particularly skilled at this whole not being in trouble, not being a criminal thing. Yeah, he's not good at anything else, and he's not good at that either. Yeah. But it seems easier. Yeah, and the thing is, this is based on a true case. That's what makes this fascinating. The, yeah, that um, during the and the Gotti trial is pivotal because during the Gotti trial, uh, this is John Gotti, the famous very because a lot of our fans aren't going to know very yeah. out gangster at the yeah. time when like the mafia was like oh i'm sorry there is no mafia yes there is <laughs> where he was very like like all the rest of them were like no the the running line is there's no such thing as the mafia and he was out there wearing pimp coats and throwing money around going that's right i'm the godfather bitch and of course law enforcement <laughs> hell was rained down upon him and during his trial a couple of his uh his associates uh Turnstay's evidence were, were just laying everything out. And there's a moment where one of them said, well, do you know those social clubs that all these good fellas hang out in that you've seen in all the films? Well, nobody's allowed to bring a gun there because the great line, wise guys and guns don't mix. Yeah. Well, of course, my uh, the um, uh, Tommy goes, well, hang on. So there's all these fat old duffers, you know, larded down with spaghetti. And cheap wine. Holding on to huge bankrolls. With no protection whatsoever. So they started holding up the, these um, mafia social clubs, which is the dumbest fucking plan ever. Well, it's, it's an insanely bad idea. Bizarre, because it's both dumb and brilliant, yeah. but they're not. their reasoning is not that brilliant. It's because nobody... Can, they're like, what can we do to these guys? I mean, the FBI is watching us every single second. The media is watching us every single second. You know... What are we supposed to do? <laughs> and obviously, yeah, they can't bring in John Gotti uh, as a character because he's on trial. He's not really part of this. Um, instead, we get Andy Garcia as Big Al, uh, who is one of the most interesting depictions of a mafia boss you've ever seen because it explain he's this guy who started off not being in the mob and becomes one of the its its big bosses. And there's a great sequence where he explains how this happened to him, how he went from being a nice family guy to being, you know, part of the family. And it's it's fascinatingly done. And he has this great sequence where he's discussing why they're not just going to rain hell down on these two kids. And he, and he just says, an eagle doesn't hunt a fly. Yeah. These people are supposed to be beneath contempt. Um, however, they they acquired, and this is, again, is part of the true story, 
something that was incredibly important to uh, the Mafia. And that becomes the MacGuffin of why the Mafia finally goes, you know. You could rip us off, but this is too important. Right. Um, so you have the FBI in one, in one corner uh, with uh, Frank Wally. Um, Who just got done playing a kind of wormy FBI guy uh, recently on television as well in the show uh, Ray Donovan. Yeah, and, he, and he's, <laughs> he's phenomenal as like this. This guy goes, you know what? Fuck them. They're, they're criminals. They're criminals. We, uh, you know, um, what are we going to do? Protect them from each other? No, screw them. Um, and the... The best thing about this, and this is a film that I, I, I love because you've got it, it unrelenting in showing two complete idiots doing something brilliantly dumb and dumbly brilliant. <laughs> uh, Ray Romano as Jerry Cardozo. Big who, shocker. That, this, yeah. yeah I, I've caught a few episodes of uh, Men of a Certain Age, and I've been impressed by his work on that. This is phenomenal. He plays Jerry Cardozo, who is the New York Times um, mafia correspondent, how do you get that gig? Um, <laughs> and he ends up writing a story about these two complete idiots. Um, and it's he is this guy who's kind of caught in the middle. He knows everybody. He knows everything that's going on. He knows that none of these people have any honorable intentions towards anybody else. And he's kind of trying to work out, like, how does he navigate that line without putting anybody else in danger? And he is a... He's great in this. I mean, you know, Andy oh, yeah. Garcia is also great in this. Who's playing a, they're both playing roles of these type of characters that are so different from the norm. Yeah. Not how we're used to seeing these characters being played, but done very human and very uh, realistically, which is needed in a film that often is playing things up for laughs and for how bizarre it is. I mean, the actual crimes, when we see Michael Pitt robbing these places, they're absurd and very funny as these mob guys are just gobsmacked that Anybody is in there robbing them, and he, he not only robs them, he completely humiliates them and everyone. Like, at one, he makes them all faux have sex with each other. Yeah. Another, he makes them take off all their clothes. <laughs> and I think it, it, in the hands of a, a lesser director, I think this would have just been... It would have been a silly spoof. Yeah. You never get the feeling that it is. You get the feeling that these people are, are idiots, uh, and that's why they do these incredibly dumb things. They're just not bright people. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I'm just, yeah, I this really... Is, uh, Raymond D. Falita. Yeah. Uh, uh, most famous thing he did is probably Bronx Cheers, which not many people... And many I people liked City seen. Island that he did in 2009. I really oh, enjoyed I that. I never saw that. Yeah, it was pretty good. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, this is really one of these films where I'm like, I actually want to go back and see some of the other stuff because this is really, it, it strikes a kind of tragic tone because, yeah, not spoiling anything, if you know anything about the history, this cannot end well for any of the parties concerned. You know, Something has to go horribly wrong because we know, you know, these guys were pulling these crimes off. You know, you know this is historical record. Um, and even though you're going down an inevitable path that, that you know, is, is pretty, pretty dark, it's done with a real amount of heart and compassion for all the characters. And you understand why everybody does everything they do. And even when the cops are assholes, complete assholes, you go, yeah, but they're actually in the right. And that, you know, the fact that they are doing the right thing to people who you're kind of like, I like them, but at the end of the day, they're kind of scumbags. And it does that really, you know, it doesn't let anybody off the hook and go, oh, they're delightful. They're criminals, but they're charming. It's like, no, they're doing, you know, bad shit. Even if they're doing bad shit to, to bad people, it's right. still bad shit. Yeah, I mean, and that's it, a really it, tough line to balance. And, and I think he does that phenomenally. Here. If anything, they are sympathetic because of just how dumb they actually are. Yeah. And like, there's, there are two kids that 
don't know any better are madly crazy in love with each other and have this fantasy that everything's going to be okay. Yeah. You know, well, what does it hurt? We're robbing criminals, you know, they're not giving it back to the poor, but still. And that's really their saving grace that I think that Ray Romano's character, Jerry uh, Cardoza sees and is like, they're too stupid to let this happen to them. I've got to, they're innocent. I've got to say, yeah. look, you've got to stop and move along. And it, it, it catches 90s New York, kind of like the point where it was clear, you know, it was cleaning up really well, but it's set in Queens, so it's still pretty rough. Yeah, I, I just, this is a, a, a film that I think should have done a lot better uh, at the box office, but I don't think anybody knew it, knew it even existed. I mean, this thing snuck out yeah. at seemingly under cover of darkness. <laughs> um, it, you know, and the thing is that it, it's everything that bloodlines fails to be it's true it's interesting characters but it handles them well it's slow paced in in places but the, it's so charming uh that it gets that it gets away with it and it comes with a full audio commentary from the director who takes through every single step of like the production history on this uh as well as three deleted scenes not a lot extra it would have been nice to see all every historical film should by law have to come with a small documentary about Absolutely. the actual people involved and this sadly does not yeah but this is a film i will go back to and watch again it's uh, a definitely lot of it does talk I, I caught some of the commentary and definitely it does talk about the historical context uh right. but yeah would it have hurt to put together a 10 15 minute documentary about because you're you know they're not dodging the fact that these are real people this is not inspired by this is this is clearly their story big al is a composite character but uh you know this they actually talk about who these people are. And I, I was really quite, you know, I was very taken with it. Yeah, me too. Really enjoyed this. And fortunately, this is, like I said, our giveaway this week. We actually have a bunch of copies of this to give away. So we have a lot of potential winners for you here. And if you don't win it, I do recommend buying it. This really this really is a it's solid buy recommendation. Uh, here's how you can win uh, Rob the Mob. First, you've got to make sure you're following at one of us net on Twitter. Second, you're going to tweet at us with your answer, which is going to be like, I want you to use all rhyming or if you will, a rap verse or something like Rob the Mob about two knobs that ends in a sob. You know, <laughs> uh, you're a poet and you really shouldn't know. It. I shouldn't because I'm not. Yeah. Um, but something like that, you know, something that all rhymes, it's going to make us laugh. That has something to do with either the movie or with, uh, with digital noise or one of us, but it has to be with uh, the Rob and mob rhyming, if you will. Uh, and hashtag it, Rob the Mob giveaway. And we're going to select our favorite answers. Like I said, I have multiple, so you guys have a really good chance of winning a copy of this. Uh, and we will take a look at our favorites. We will contact you versus Twitter, open to U.S. residents only. Sorry. Sorry. And uh, we will send you copy those winners' copies of this. Aren't you lucky? Yes. <laughs> well, anyway, that brings us to the end of this week's Digital Noise. Aww. Just in time for you to go make your dinner date. Yay! Well, actually, you're going to be a little late. I'm eh. sorry. <laughs> but anyway, please join us again next week and practically every week. We're probably going to be taking a week off at least uh, during Comic-Con because, quite frankly, like we're all in different places and I don't know how we would do it. But Scattered to the four winds like ashes. We're going to but there will be so much bonus content this that week. You, know, yeah. you guys can be at Comic-Con. There's a whole bunch of events going on. So you know, there will always be the traditional reviews of, of new releases. True. Um, you know, the OGs will be out there. So, you know, don't worry, folks. We're, we're not leaving you in the loop. There will be plenty of content up on the site, just maybe not Digital Noise. And we're also going to be trying to get ahead in the next two weeks ahead of the game and put out a lot of the stuff, uh, reviews before Getting they actually come the out. Game? No! I'm going to try. Wow. I know. 
It's like time slipping forward. But uh, until then, uh, no releases too big, no releases too small. From Criterion <gasps> to Catastrophe, we review, well, maybe not all of them, but, you know, a good portion. Healthy chunk. A healthy chunk. There's some stuff that shows up my door. I'm like, oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs>